0: What a great time of worship and singing here this morning. I really enjoy that. Thank you, Dustin and everybody else, all of you help us lead us in worship and uh, prepare our hearts to open the Bible together. If you're a visitor with us here this morning, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for coming to spend this Lord's Day, this beautiful Lord's Day morning here in July with us. Uh, we're in a study of the book of Nehemiah. Um, We've titled this study, Rebuilding Your Future. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah 11, um, after this morning, we have two more weeks uh, in the book of Nehemiah, then we'll be finished with this study. Uh, But the book of uh, Nehemiah, this book is Nehemiah's narrative about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, but also the reviving of its citizens. Uh, What we have here in this book really is uh, what we might call uh, Nehemiah's memoirs. And if you've been with us, you'll know that the first six chapters of the book are about the rebuilding of the walls of the city. The, the city had been destroyed by the Babylonians and about 150 years earlier, actually. And Nehemiah comes back and they rebuild the city and its walls. Then when we get to chapter 7, you remember, Nehemiah takes a census of the people who can repopulate the city of jerusalem but in the middle of that a revival breaks out and so we've been kind of in a little parenthesis these last couple of weeks in verses eight through ten Um, Remember Ezra the scribe leads this uh, great preaching and proclamation of God's word. The people are brought to a a place of repentance and confession. Uh, There's a great celebration of God's goodness and forgiveness. And then the people consecrate themselves uh, to follow and to serve the Lord. So all that's been going on, and now we get to chapter 11, we're back to the idea now of repopulating the city. It's time to repopulate the city and put the city of Jerusalem back on the map, if you will. They, they need a bunch of new residents to live in the city. Uh, they spend all this time building the wall that's a, it's a spacious city, uh, there's high, strong walls, there's a beautiful temple there, uh, but they need people, because uh, what good are walls and buildings without people? So, Nehemiah 11 is a record of the people who repopulate the city of Jerusalem. It's another one of these long lists of names in the book of Nehemiah. Now, we're not going to really look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 26. That's actually kind of a flashback to about 100 years earlier, the group of people that came back, that first wave that came back from Babylon to Judah under Zerubbabel. So we'll not spend uh, really any time there, but it's just a long list of those people. And probably that listing is there just to to give the the people in Nehemiah's day encouragement that a previous generation had also made sacrifices uh, to do God's work. But let's read uh, Nehemiah 11, 1 through 3 this morning. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine-tenths remained in the outer cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived in his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So reads uh, God's inspired word. All of us here have uh, watched movies on television or we've gone to the cinema or the theater and we're all familiar with what happens at the end of the movie, right? What happens at the end? They roll the credits, right? The credits roll and the list of all the actors, the supporting actors and actresses, the hairstylists, the makeup artists, the lighting directors, the costume designers, the special effects creators, all the people that make the actors look good, that work behind the scenes, now, I don't want to have a show of hands here this morning, but how many of you have ever stayed to watch the credits of a movie all the way till the end? Now, a guy after the early service told me not long ago he was at a movie doing that, and after a while, it paused for a second and said, is anyone still in the theater? A voice actually came over and said that. I guess they could stop running him if nobody's there. But look, we all love the movie. I mean, we get into the plot. We focus on the main actors. We even like the popcorn and the snacks. I mean, there's uh, nothing like movie theater popcorn, right? But for the most part, we could care less about the credits. In fact, when the credits roll, we roll too. We roll out the door, basically, out to the car to, to head out. But you know, what happens in the cinema, if we're not careful, can also happen uh, in the church, All of our focus can be on the main action that we see on Sunday mornings in the service and we can be unaware or even kind of uninterested in all the vital work that's going on behind the scenes to make things happen. I mean, even in the church, if we're not careful, we can kind of fall into a celebrity mentality that elevates a few people and basically kind of ignores uh, the work of the many. But when you think about it, the truth is, Everything that all of us do is really small and insignificant in the greater scheme of things. I'm in the church of Jesus Christ, the church universal, but also in the local church, there aren't any heroes or any celebrities except the Lord. He's the only one who's to be exalted. In fact, uh, I love the uh, statement by Jim Elliott, uh, the great missionary who was martyred by the Alka Indians back in the late 1950s. And he made this statement one time, we're a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Now, that's a great quote, isn't it? We're just a bunch of nobodies, but what we're trying to do is exalt somebody. And that somebody, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all part here, though, this morning of what we might call God's anonymous army, carrying out the work and the will of God here in this place, in our homes, and wherever God leads us. Before he goes any further, what Nehemiah does here in his passage here in Nehemiah 11 is he rolls the credits and he recognizes all the anonymous helpers who made all the work that he's done possible. And he pauses here to celebrate them. Now this is the fourth of five lists in the book of Nehemiah. There's one in chapter three, one in chapter seven, one in chapter 10, we looked at last time. Then there's this one and there's another one in chapter 12. By the way, you know, you think about the Bible, all the things God could have put in scripture and that he did put there, all the great mysteries we'd like to have explained when God takes up a lot of space here in books like Nehemiah with lists of people's names. So why does God do that? Well, I think one of the reasons is God wants us to know that he cares about individual people. In fact, you know, most of these people now here, we can't even pronounce their names. They're long forgotten and unremembered. But God uh, remembers and focuses on individuals. And, And Nehemiah wants future generations to know that he couldn't have done this by himself. And so he recognizes all the nobodies who followed uh, the will of God to move back into the city of Jerusalem, to bring that city back to life. Because that was Nehemiah's vision. All the way back when he was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes in Susa, and he heard about the city of Jerusalem being broken down, his vision was to rebuild the city and to make it a a vital city. And that can't happen if people don't go live there. So he writes the names and gives the list here. So Nehemiah rolls the credits. And as the credits roll here in this passage, I want to focus on two very simple thoughts. The submission of these people and the spirit of the people. Now, the first thing we see here is the submission of these people. Now from the days of King David, you remember all the way back about 1000 BC, all the way from the time of King David until the Babylonian captivity, a time period of around 500 years, Jerusalem had been the city of David. It was the epicenter of Jewish life. But you remember the Babylonians came in 586 BC and the city and the walls and the temple were destroyed and left in ruins. And after a 70-year captivity in Babylon, the Jewish people came back to the land. But it wasn't until almost 100 years after that that Nehemiah leads the group who comes back and they rebuild the city. And again, at the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, the city is rebuilt. But the city needs people. Now, the problem is Jerusalem was not a popular place to live back at that time. The city had been broken down and in ruins before Nehemiah arrived, so when people had come back to the land from the Babylonian captivity, they settled in small towns and villages all around that area, but very few of the people went to live in Jerusalem because it was a ruin. So it was an undesirable place to live, and even after it's rebuilt, most of the people didn't want to move there. Um, The city had a housing shortage. You'd have to go there and build your own place to live. It would have had a higher cost of living. Uh, there was less potential for employment there. And um, in, when invading armies came in, it'd be the first place they would attack would be the capital city. And uh, you'd kind of get trapped there. And also just a very practical reason is the people were settled already other places. They had friends, they had familiarity. It was not very appealing to uproot your family and relocate to the city of Jerusalem. So. Most of the people didn't want to live there. So to solve this population crisis and to get the city moving, Nehemiah launches this plan of casting lots. They're going to have a lottery for 10% of the people to relocate to the city. Notice verse 1. Now the leaders of the people who lived in Jerusalem... Uh, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other city. So the people had pledged to get a tithe, give a tithe of their income to the Lord. Now there's going to be a tithe or a tenth of the people that are going to be dedicated to the Lord and move in. Uh, To this city. Now, uh, some of you, I'm sure, are thinking when I read that, what's up here with this idea of casting lots? Why did they have a lottery to select who would move into the city? Well, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East, and we see it often in the Old Testament. Now, Casting lots in that day would be the same thing today as like throwing dice or flipping a coin or something like that to make a decision. Now, in ancient times, they used a lot of different means of casting lots, depending on the place and the local customs. They would use uh, coins. They'd use polished sticks. They'd use cards. They'd use dice that were made out of stones and, and so on. But something you could mark in some way and throw and see how they would come up to make a decision. And again, this was the main method of making decisions in ancient Israel which is interesting because it's a demonstration of the people's confidence in the sovereignty and the providence of God. They believed God was in control of events to such an extent, his control extended even to which way dice would come up or sticks would land. So they saw God as in control to the smallest details of life and that he could control and and guide them in that way. In fact, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. So they believed in God's providence to guide them in this way. Now today, we don't make our decisions by casting lots. In fact, uh, the last instance of casting lots in the Bible to make a decision is in Acts chapter 1, right before the day of Pentecost when the outpouring of the Spirit takes place. Remember what happened that um, Judas Iscariot had betrayed Christ and killed himself? So they needed a replacement for that 12th apostle, so they drew lots and selected the the 12th man to to fill out the, the apostles. But after the day of Pentecost and that very next chapter and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit coming to indwell God's people, there are no more examples of discerning God's will by casting lots. Now, today we still face the same struggles they did back then in knowing the will of God, but we discern the will of God through the Word of God, through His Scriptures, through the Spirit who indwells us, through prayer, and I think also by looking at God's providential ordering of the circumstances of life. That's how we uh, determine God's will today. But the main point here is not the method these people used in discerning God's will, but the fact that, and this is important, once they knew the will of God, they did it. Thousands of people here get drafted. Uh, They win the lottery, if you will. Now, this was one lottery they wanted to lose. They didn't want to win this one because, again, moving to Jerusalem meant you had to uproot your family, you had to to leave your friends and all the familiarity and get used to an entirely new existence. Uh, But nevertheless, when their names were called, they willingly submitted to the call of the Lord. There's no objection here and there's no complaint. At least it's not registered here in the passage. Now, if there's one thing we know from the Old Testament the children of Israel were good at, it's complaining, right? When you go back and read, you know, the wandering in the wilderness, and by the way, we're pretty good at it too a lot of the time. But 10% of them get selected by lot. They don't complain. And notice here, they don't compare. It would have been very easy to say, well, why do we have to move? You know, why do these other ninety percent get to stay in their homes and stay with their uh, familiar surroundings and you know we have to move into, into the city and all there was none of that and uh, you and I need to, to get over the uh, the curse of comparison as well in our lives. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is right at the end of John's gospel, Jesus is resurrected and he's walking along there with John and Peter. remember that story? and Peter's there with Jesus and Jesus tells him, Peter, when you were, when you're young, you used to to gird yourself and you'd go wherever you wanted to go. But he said, when you're old, people are going to come. They're going to stretch out your hands and they're going to gird you and they're going to take you where you do not wish to go. Jesus was telling Peter, Peter, you're going to be crucified someday when you're old. Not a very uh, enticing prospect. And then after that, Jesus looked at Peter though, and he said, Peter, you follow me. Now, what does Peter do right after that? It says, and he saw the other disciple following after them, that John, and he looked at John and asked Jesus, well, what's going to happen to him? And what does Jesus say? If I want him to live until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. We get our eyes on other people and wondering, what's their lot in life? Why is that happening to them? Why is this happening to me? We compare ourselves with others. Our call is to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads. Twice there in that passage, he tells Peter, Peter, you follow me. And that's what we're to do. We're to find the calling of God for our life and we're to follow him. Now, 10% of these people get drafted here in verse 1, but notice in verse 2, a group of others volunteered to move to Jerusalem. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, Some commentators think the group in verse 2 is the same as the group in verse 1, that you know, now the lots have been cast, and so now they're volunteering, but I take it to be two different groups of people. There are those 10% that moved there because uh, their their number came up in the lottery, if you will, but then verse 2 is another group of people who just decide to volunteer on their own uh, to move into the city. Um, I like the way uh, one writer put it. He says this, These people who volunteered to live there put God's program over their own individual desires. They were devoted to Yahweh and the worship given to Him in the temple rather than to their own little lives with their trivial concerns. They were pursuing God's kingdom and the worship of God in Jerusalem rather than their own safety and their prosperity. It's a band of willing volunteers You know, it's a great privilege to be drafted into God's service, but it's even more precious to volunteer, to volunteer for what God calls us to do. And what God had called them to do was to come into the city of Jerusalem and live there. By the way, notice in verse 1, Jerusalem is called the holy city. Down in verse 18, again, it's called the holy city. It's the, the city where God had placed his name and where God's presence had dwelled there in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And By the way, it's still a city that God has even in his prophetic program into the future. So what God had called him to do was special and hallowed to live in this city. But the point I think for all of us here this morning is this. God has something for each one of us to do. We need to submit to God and surrender to that and do it with a spirit spirit of humility and willingness. For every one of us here, discerning the will of God for our lives may take some time on a particular issue. You're wanting to know what God wants you to do about a certain thing, and sometimes discerning the will of God takes time. But once we know the will of God, doing it should be immediate. So discerning the will of God may take some time, but doing the will of God, once we know it, should be immediate in our lives. Uh, James Merritt's uh, a well-known Baptist preacher, he says it like this, the problem with most Christians is not that they need guidance in what they don't know, they need obedience in what they do know. And that's the truth, isn't it? Oftentimes it's not guidance we need in what we don't know, but it's obedience in the things that we know that God wants us to do. And these people immediately obeyed the will of God for them. They submitted, they surrendered to the will of God for their lives. They willingly, gladly stepped up to the plate. It didn't take a bunch of cajoling and coercing and compulsion. It was a glad obedience to do what God had called them to do. And the same should be true of us, I would say, and even more so, because our hearts have been captured by the goodness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. We should view submitting to the Lord as a great privilege in life, not a sacrifice. It's an honor and a privilege to pour out our lives in submission and surrender to the Lord Jesus. It should be. I've uh, told a lot of stories here about David Livingston I read a biography about him last summer, a moving, stirring biography, and he was a great pioneer down into Africa, really the the first uh, European to go down into that area. And when he was returning to Africa to go back there again for another stint, um, he was speaking to a group of college students, and this is what he said to them. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. If you read a biography about him, you'd, th- you'd think twice, but he says, I've never ceased to rejoice that God's given me this calling. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spreading so much of, of spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. Man, you read about his life and and have those words ring in your ears. He said, I never made a sacrifice. It was a privilege to do the things that I've done for the Lord. Look, the message for all of us here from this passage is simple this morning, and that is to find your place and submit to the Lord's will, to, to stay in your lane and to count it a privilege to submit and to surrender to what God wants you to do. Now, think about this for a moment. For all of these people who got drafted and all these people who volunteered, what was their major contribution that they made? They lived in the city of Jerusalem. If you're to ask these people years later, what did you do back in the days of Nehemiah? I lived in the city of Jerusalem. That was it, right? They, They moved into the city and they lived there. Nothing dramatic, nothing spectacular. And I like that because you and I need to make a firm commitment in our lives to the mundane and to the routine and to the basic. I mean, these people are commended here basically just for showing up. And whatever it is that God has called you to do, the starting point for that is just to be there. And one of the things I would say just about all of us here on a Sunday morning, I don't think we realize how much our presence means to other people. In your ABF, the people you sit around, and everybody kind of sits in the same places in church, right? You kind of sit around the same people, and I hope you get to know them. And how much our presence means to other people. Uh, I don't know if you realize that or not, but it, it means a great deal uh, to me, and I know it does to others who here as well. The, just the simple discipline of just showing up and just being present. Our, our presence itself is a gift to others. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says this in his commentary on Nehemiah. He says, never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. You may not be asked to perform some dramatic ministry. The men, women, and children who helped to repopulate the city of Jerusalem were serving God, their nation, and future generations by their step of faith. They just move into the city. That's what they do. Just in the mundane and the routine of life, they do a great work for God. Something else I love here in verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. The other people who didn't have to move there blessed the people who got drafted and also those who volunteer. In other words, they didn't take the sacrifice of these people uh, for granted And you and I need to do the same thing. We need to to slow down sometime in our lives and take stock of all of the people around us who are volunteering and serving the Lord and through that are serving us as well. We need to take time and bless them and thank them for all they do for us. Those of you here who are younger, who have uh, uh, young children or or, or young people in our ministries here at Faith Bible Church, how often do you thank the Sunday school teachers who give their time every week to come here and to minister to your children, Uh, to to thank those who ministered here this last summer at VBS, to thank our musicians, um, those who do the coffee ministry ushers who are here, greeters, those who work with our students and our young people. If your young people are being blessed through that, Uh, the leader of your adult Bible fellowship, people in your adult Bible fellowship who maybe keep a prayer list or or have people over to their home. On and on and on we can go. Of all those who are blessing our lives, how often do we take time to thank them? And the people blessed all the men who volunteered uh, to live in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe you listen to uh, a well-known pastor, a radio ministry that really blesses your life. Write them a note sometime and tell them how much uh, what they're doing ministers to you. I can assure them it'll it'll mean more to you than you'll ever know. Well, that's the submission that we see here in this passage of these people submitting to uh, the will of God for their lives. Now, we also see the spirit of the people here. We have this list of, of, of names of unknown people, again, Names we can't even pronounce very well today, or some of us can't pronounce at all, right? Just an unseen but vital army of people who moved into the city and accepted God's call for their lives, unremembered, uh, forgotten people. And a great question for you and for me this morning is, are we willing to be an unknown soldier in God's anonymous army, just fulfilling some role and place that God has given to us? Are, are you and I willing to choose to live in our Jerusalem today, to live unnoticed and maybe unheralded in what we do for the Lord? That is, are, are you willing to do what nobody else wants to do? I remember uh, years ago, there was a A man that I used to meet with in my early 20s, uh, when I was uh, 21 years of age, my life really had a dramatic turn and a change. I committed myself completely to the Lord. And uh, not long after that, I I met an older man who lived in South Oklahoma City. And uh, I would go every Friday night. I did it for three years. Unless I was out of town, I was there. We'd meet for two or three hours. I'd wear the old guy out, actually, out there talking about the Bible. And he'd answer questions and all kinds of things. His name was Stanley Price. And uh, as I began to study the Bible and my life was changing, I I knew that God wanted me to do something. You know, when you're a believer and you're walking with the Lord, you just have this sense that there's something God wants you to do. And so I asked him, I, I said, how do I find out what God wants me to do? And I'll never forget his words. He said, Mark, he says, find something that nobody else wants to do and do it. Now, that's not what I wanted to hear. You know, young guy in my early 20s, you know, find something nobody else wants to do and do it. But from that time on, I started praying, asking, okay, God, what do you want me to do? That very week, my dad, who'd been teaching the seventh grade boys Sunday school class at Metropolitan Baptist Church where I grew up, I was still living with my parents. I was in law school. I was living there. And uh, my dad was sitting there at the table, and my dad said, you know, I've been thinking about maybe stop and teaching the seventh grade boys class. I've been doing it all this time, kind of getting older. I don't know if the boys can relate to me as well. And when he said that in a split second of time, he wasn't thinking about me, I don't think, but in a moment of time, I knew that's what God wants me to do because I thought that's something nobody else wants to do. I can guarantee you. So my dad's been doing it for 27 years and he can't get anybody else to do it. Um, yeah, some of you have seventh graders, you're shaking your heads there. In the fact, the seventh grade boys at that time, we met and in the, in the church was so crowded, we met in the boys' locker room. They sat around the benches in there when I taught the class. By the way, Jason Fritz, who's been one of our elders here at our church, was in that class, uh, the very first class I had there, so how God works in that. But, you know, it's interesting, God, when I surrendered to do that, God led me to do what? To teach a class, and that's the path that God had for me in my life spiritually was to begin uh, to teach the Bible. So the way God's providence works, but find something that nobody else wants to do and just to begin to do it. And that's what we see here in this passage. Nobody else wanted to go. And these people volunteer. You know, there's a couple of extremes in people's attitudes when it comes to serving the Lord. Some people that you meet, I think they have a sense that they matter too much. There's a sense of kind of self-importance. They, uh, they matter too much, I think, in their own mind and what they're doing. But I think many other people, in fact, maybe most people, believe they don't matter at all. They kind of get discouraged. and They look at themselves and what they can do, and it seems so trivial and mundane and routine that they wonder if it matters at all. But, you know, I think the truth is in the middle. We do matter to God as we play our part. I mean, he lists the names of these people, but ultimately God is the one uh, who gets the glory. But again, what we do may seem so menial and so mundane. Last Sunday morning, as I was walking after this service down the hallway here to go to the 11 o'clock service, I saw a man here in our church and, um, he's in his eighties. And, uh, went by and said hello to him. He's a little bit unsteady on his feet almost. He kind of braced against the wall and stopped and just talked to him for a moment. And he said, you know, I'd like to come in and talk to you here sometime before long. And I said, sure, I'd love to, love to talk with you. And he said, what, what do you like to talk about? And he said, well, you know, he said, I just feel worthless. He said, I, I, uh, I don't know why God's leaving me here on earth. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of people who are, you know, mid 80s or getting older who may feel that way. They just kind of feel useless and worthless. You know, what can I really do? To serve the Lord. And we talked about that for a moment. We're going to get together and discuss that further. But I think sometimes, you know, when we can't do the bigger things we're doing for the Lord, we kind of think, well, you know, it's kind of all over. There's really nothing I can do for the Lord. One of the things I told him is I said, I'll tell you one thing you can do is you can pray a lot. When you pray, pray for me. Um, You know, we can do something. But I, I think sometimes we feel that way, like maybe even when you're younger, you kind of feel worthless and useless. Look, most of life is unspectacular tasks filled with faithfulness. Um, It's unglamorous things, not very exciting, but there are things that have to be done, that need to be done. So a great story I ran across, younger wives will appreciate this here today. A man came home from work to find total mayhem in his house, his three children were outside, still in their pajamas, playing in the dirt with empty food boxes and wrappers strewn all around the front yard. The door to his wife's minivan was open, and the front, as, as was the front door to his house. Proceeding into the entry, he found an even bigger mess. A lamp had been knocked over, and the throw rug was wadded against one wall, and Rotted against one wall in the front room the tv was loudly blaring the family room was littered with toys and several items of clothing in the kitchen dishes filled the sink breakfast food was spilled on the counter dog food was spilled on the floor a broken glass lay under the table and a small pile of sand was spread by the back door he quickly ran up the stairs stepping over toys and more piles of clothes looking for his wife worried that she was ill or that something serious had happened. He discovered her in the bedroom, still curled up in bed in her pajamas, reading a novel. There was a half-eaten bagel and two cups of coffee on the bedside stand. She looked up and asked how his day went. He looked at her bewildered and said, what in the world happened here today? She smiled and said, you know every day when you come home from work and you ask what in the world I did all day? Well, today I didn't do it. A lot of small stuff can be significant, can't it? I mean, it can kind of pile up into a real problem and a mess. And like that woman, many of us, in fact, most of us, have labored in obscurity, doing things that go unnoticed. But here's a very important thing to remember. The Lord will not forget what you've done. It will not go unnoticed. These names that are listed here are a testimony to us that God will not forget what we've done. Nehemiah has his list, but God has a list as well where he's keeping track of what we're doing and someday we will be rewarded for what we've done. Hebrews 6 uh, verse 10 says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. God won't forget what we do. In fact, Max Lucado has this great quote I ran across. He says this, talking about in the future when we stand before the Lord. He says, the small will be great, the forgotten will be remembered, the unnoticed will be crowned, and the faithful will be honored. Your day is coming. What the world has overlooked, your Father has remembered. And sooner than you can imagine, you'll be blessed by Him. Look at this promise from the pen of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 4-5 says, God will praise each one of them. What an incredible sentence. God will praise each one of them. Not the best of them, not a few of them, not the achievers among them. God will praise each one of them. You won't be left out. God will see to that. In fact, God himself will give the praise. When it comes to giving recognition, God doesn't delegate the job. Michael doesn't hand out the crowns. Gabriel doesn't speak on behalf of the throne. God himself does the honors. God himself will praise his children. Great spiritual enterprises and works of God would have never been possible but for the unacclaimed sacrificial ministry of unknown people who are ready and willing to play a part in supporting uh, the work and the will uh, of Jesus Christ. The issue for us is not are we famous, it's are we faithful. It's not are we uh, popular and powerful, the issue is are we productive. God loves to use the weak and the frail and the anonymous uh, to do his great work back uh, last april i had the opportunity to go speak at moody church i know i mentioned that the week after that and told you all what a great experience that was that great historic church where uh, so many great men of god have pastored but we got to be there at the church and uh, while i was here at the church i think i mentioned you know moody's uh, portable pulpit was there It was a pulpit they would take everywhere you'd preach to set it up and i got to see that and stand behind that but we also got to go, Cheryl and I did, over to Moody Bible Institute and tour there, tour that place. And there's a, a museum there devoted to the life and to the ministry of D.L. Moody, an incredible man uh, used of God. He, he was converted at age 19. Um, he didn't attend school beyond the fifth grade. Uh, many people believe in his late teens when he got converted, he was actually still illiterate at that time. I mean, he couldn't spell. I and mean, his grammar was awful. In fact, when he would go over to England... People would come to make fun of him. His grammar was so bad, but oftentimes they would fall under conviction. His preaching was so powerful, and they'd be saved there. Um, An incredible man of God. In fact, uh, when he he, uh, was converted in Boston, but he ended up in Chicago, he was going to churches there. And back then, uh, this is a fascinating fact, you had to pay money to have your pew and have your seat in churches. And so the better the seat, the more the money. And so these young street children, Moody wanted to bring them to church, but they didn't have any money, so he would buy a pew for them to sit in, but the people didn't like them there because they were too noisy and all of that. So Moody started his own work with these young boys, these young people, and their parents started coming. Within a short period of time, there were 1,500 people there. They started a church, and of course, that launched his worldwide ministry. But there's an interesting story, and I'm sure many of you have heard this probably before, but... Moody was uh, converted and and he became well-known himself, but he had a great influence on a well-known pastor and author by the name of Frederick B. Meyer or F.B. Meyer. And he heard uh, Moody preach. And he was so deeply stirred by Moody's preaching, he embarked on his own uh, far-reaching ministry, the the great F.B. Meyer. Um, Under F.B. Meyer's ministry, a college student named J. Wilbur Chapman accepted Christ as his Savior. Uh, later on, J. Wilbur Chapman led a, a baseball player to Christ named Billy Sunday, who became a great evangelist in the United States in the last century. Um, in 1924, a group of businessmen invited Billy, uh, Billy Sunday to hold an evangelistic meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina. And out of that, a prayer group arose where they were praying for revival for Charlotte. Uh, during that time, a man named Mordecai Ham later came there and held crusades there, and even though he didn't have many converts there, on one of the last nights under the Big tent, a tall, lanky young man walked up the aisle to receive Jesus Christ, and of course his name was Billy Graham. So what a, a chain of events here. D.L. Moody, F.B. Meyer, Wilbur Chapman, Billy Sunday, Mordecai Ham, Billy Graham. But the question I think that we should ask or think about here this morning is, well, who led D.L. Moody to Christ? Of course, the answer is a man named Edward Kimball. He was a a Sunday school teacher there in Boston. Moody had moved to Boston at the age of 19, and he worked in a a, a shoe store owned by his uncle. But to work there, the uncle made him go to church. Now, Edward Kimball was his Sunday school teacher, and he said this, he'd never seen anyone whose mind was as spiritually dark as Dwight's. Dwight L. Moody. Never met anybody whose mind was that spiritually dark. But he tells, Edward Kimball does in his own words, how he led D.L. Moody to Christ. He says this, I started down to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours, and I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy, that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when uh, when they learned it, they might taunt him and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over all this, I passed by the store without noticing it. Then when I found I'd gone by the door, I determined to just make a dash into the store and get it it all over with at once. I found him in the back of the back part of the store, wrapping up shoes and paper and putting them on shelves. I went up and put my hand on his shoulder. And as I leaned over, I placed my foot on a shoe box. Then I made my plea. I felt as, as if it was a very weak one. I don't know what words I used, nor could he tell you. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted from him in return. That was all there was to it. And I think afterward, he said, there were tears in my eyes. And that is an interesting thing. D.L. Moody says he doesn't remember what Edward Kimball said, but he remembered when he was talking to him, there were tears in his eyes. He says, going back to Kimball's story, he said, it seemed the young man was just ready for that light that broke in upon him. For there at once in the back of that shoe store in Boston, the future great evangelist gave himself and his life to Jesus Christ. And that set off this chain of events. It all started with an ordinary Christian named Edward Kimball, who reached D.L. Moody, who reached F.B. Meyer, who reached Wilbur Chapman, who reached Billy Sunday, and Mordecai Ham, who reached Billy Graham. And by the way, this morning I would say who reached me, because I was five years old when I heard Billy Graham preaching on television and took Jesus to be my Savior. So when you think you don't have much to offer to the Lord, remember that Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who spent a Saturday afternoon reaching out to a young man in his class who he said had the most spiritually darkened mind he'd ever seen. Because God has a special way of using routine faithfulness in the small things of life to accomplish great things. And in fact, I would say that's really the simple lesson of our passage here this morning. God has a special way of using routine faithfulness in the small things of life to accomplish great things. As we close this morning, I want to make one final appeal. What we have before us here in Nehemiah 11 is a long list of names. Nehemiah has his list, but I want us to never forget that God has a list as well. God has a list and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And God's list is the only list that matters. And I pray that your, list is, that your name is on that list this morning through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life because it contains the names of all those who've given up on themselves and trusted totally in the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in their place for forgiveness and for salvation. So I pray that you've made that decision this morning to trust Jesus Christ, to do what D.L. Moody did there in the back of that store and to trust Jesus Christ, the one who loves you, uh, to be your Savior. Don't leave here this morning without knowing that your name is on God's list. Let's pray together. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who's never trusted Christ, I pray that you might bring them to that place this morning where they'll believe in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who washed away their sins as he died there upon the cross in their their place. Father, for those of us who know you, there there may be people here this morning who do feel kind of worthless and useless and just a mundane in the routine of life. Oh, Father, I pray that you would encourage each one of us this morning through the simple preaching of your word. That's in the routine and the unnoticed and the unheralded things of life, that you accomplish great things. Father, help each of us to find our lane, to find our place, to submit to it willingly, to do it with a spirit of humility and cheerfulness, to realize, Father, it's no sacrifice at all. Father, move us. I pray here at Faith Bible Church, it would be a, a mighty army of God's anonymous out there doing great things for you. Father, we thank you for all the willing workers in this church. Sacrifice every week to make so many things happen here. And I pray, Father, for those of us who were ministered to by that, that we would bless them and thank them and show them our appreciation for their wonderful work that they do behind the scenes for us. Father, send us out of here now, I pray this morning, with your blessing. Fill us with your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.